Hello everyone, welcome to, I should say, a weekly episode of Tennis with an Accent, but we haven't been weekly here on this platform for quite some time, but we have good reason to be breaking the silence. Uh, I have a, how do I say it, a rising star, a rising voice, star of tennis Twitter, Gil Gross, joining me in this episode, and uh, this should be a fun conversation. I followed his work, and uh, he his, his analysis is, you know, top-notch. So let me bring in my guest without wasting any time. Hey, Gil, how are you? Hey, Sakub. Thanks for the kind words and uh, thanks for the invite onto the pod. No, I think this is all genuine. And yeah, I, I think I've, I've been meaning to do this for a while, but I also do a cricket podcast now. So I'm kind of like, uh, you know, man without a country or man without, you know, a podcast because I don't know which podcast I'm <laughs> favoring more. I mean, my heart is still with tennis, but I'm having a lot of fun catching up with some some cricket theme mm-hmm. podcasts, but you know, with you there'll be no cricket, so no no surprise test. So <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so now I, I see you are pretty busy on uh, social media. You have your own YouTube uh, show called uh, Monday Match Analysis. Is it inspired by you know what is it like a Monday quarterback? What is the American thing, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's Monday morning Monday, quarterback. <laughs> yeah, there's Monday morning quarterback, and then in MMA. This guy named Luke Thomas used to do Monday morning analyst, I believe. So I think, uh, like it's a it's a show actually similar to mine where um, Luke basically analyzes MMA fights from the weekend, primarily UFC fights. So I think uh, subconsciously, those two places might have been where the name come came from, but I wasn't. I don't know. It was just kind of the name that that worked and made sense. Yeah, it, I'm sure uh, it does make sense. It's pretty catchy, and it kind of, you know, it's a recap. It kind of does announce what you intend to do. Review the week in ATP, and you know some of the big stories. And you're also a tennis channel anchor. So w- let's start. You know, a, a customary question: My podcast and many podcasts. What's your tennis journey been? I follow your Twitter account. And I met, I saw when Del Potro retired that that's one of the first matches you saw live at, at Flushing Meadows. So just uh, fill the listeners in. How did it start for you? And why are we talking tennis today? Yeah, uh, so I think it started, and I always feel like uh, I always feel like this story isn't as as interesting as I wished it was. But I think uh, I was in a lot of these camps during the summer where you tried a lot of different sports. And I know that at, at a certain point, I like tennis so much. I like playing tennis so much that I wanted to just do tennis camp. So at, at the, you know, one of the local gyms slash uh, clubs that uh, my parents and, and I've always belonged to, I started doing their tennis camp. And then of course, that was a more recreational kind of casual focused thing. As I started to get better, I wanted to, to train with, uh, better players and better coaches. And it kind of escalated from there as a player. Um, and then as a fan, you know, you're right. I think growing up near the U S open, that was a big catalyst for me. Uh, seeing my first ever match, it was uh, the 20, the 2009 U S open final between Federer and Del Potro. I was hooked after that. I was a massive sports fan growing up, uh, New York sports fan, Rangers, Knicks, Jets, uh, and Yankees. And, uh, tennis was, was always part of that for me, but it, you know, I started to forge a special connection with tennis because it was also the sport I played. 
And then when I try to analyze why was I attracted to playing tennis, why did it really grab me? I think one part is the individual nature of it. And I liked the responsibility of, of the one-on-one aspect. And I like to be the one in charge of winning and losing, um, and that mental challenge. And I also felt like I wasn't at a huge disadvantage being a smaller kid. Uh, whereas in baseball and basketball, which I also played, I felt like I really couldn't be as good as I wanted to be because I was too small. Uh, but tennis, and this is one of the reasons why I gravitated towards David Ferrer as my favorite player in tennis. I, I felt like I was still hitting the ball almost as hard as some of the bigger kids and, uh, I could move better than them and I was more coordinated and I could still be good at it. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that could probably come back as uh, talking points later on. So just, uh, I've also lived in New York for a couple of years uh, and I've been to the open a lot of times myself. Uh, so I want to hear from you, uh, where does tennis fit in, in the spectrum of uh, sporting uh, culture, sporting life in New York? You know, if you go into a bar, like, you know, during the U S open, what are the chances uh, screens will be showing U S open and, uh, and, and growing up, it's a broader question. Uh, where does tennis rank? Because, as an immigrant who moved to United States in 95, I thought everyone in the world would be talking about the U.S. Open and Wimbledon. But, you know, pretty soon in Massachusetts, I realized Pete Sampras wasn't a household name. But I want to hear, you know, how did you relate to this and what was your ecosystem like and where did tennis rank in it? Unfortunately, it's it's niche. Uh, I, I always, you know, I feel like there uh, it's not a tennis fans are not. Uh, mainstream. They are, uh, you know, my friends growing up being sports fans, most of them would watch major finals, uh, would, you know, the big three at times have sucked them in. The most times I've ever been texted by, you know, random people, the time I felt like everybody in the world was watching tennis was the 2019 Wimbledon final, where, you know, I, I felt like, I felt like it really penetrated. But other than that, uh, it's not as big as I would, of course, want it to be, but I will say in, you know, in the suburbs, there's still, uh, especially there's a major culture of tennis players who, who follow the sport and relate to the sport that way. So I think, uh, you know, where I grew up and on long Island, where a, a lot of the U S open attendees will come from, you know, there are plenty of people passionate about the sport, tons of people passionate about the sport. And now I'm, now I'm in LA and there's so many tennis players in LA who follow the sport and love the sport, but it just feels like in the, in the culture of sports fandom, there is less kind of penetration into the mainstream uh, when it comes to what tennis does. And uh, you know, I guess, if, if you want, we could kind of talk about maybe how that could change or why that is. But I think that's that's how I feel about it, unfortunately. No, just elaborate on that, because uh, in my early recollections uh, in the U.S., when I started watching ESPN, I was coming from India. Mm-hmm. And that time, Wimbledon was uh, shown on HBO and then a few years later on TNT. I don't know if people will have a hard time believing it. But my cousin's family, you know, they had HBO. So I was lucky to, you know, watch Wimbledon. I never missed Wimbledon because that was my favorite tournament, you know, growing up. But yeah. uh, during that years, those years, sorry, I kind of grasped 
because in India, we were getting the world feed, like I think from BBC for these tournaments or there's a Hong Kong based channel called Prime Sports, where international personalities were calling these matches. But when I came to US, I, I quickly realized because I was not coming from a slam nation. You know, tennis is international, but, you know, Americans, French and Australians and English have their own, you know, tournament and their own networks. So I quickly realized that, you know, there's only one channel and they won't show Becker or Edberg. Again, no disrespect to Americans. I'm American now, but, you know, I have to watch Sampras and Chang or, you know, Davenport or whoever's on, on you know, on, on their one channel telecast program because then for Becker, I would all, always see the flashing score at the end or he won. And then, of course, when he made the quarter mm-hmm. semis, that match was live. So so your answer, your, your, your follow-up question is why we can explore. So I got for the longest time that the fascination is for their own because America has a very rich culture in tennis. McEnroe, Connors, you know, and then the Sampras, Agassi, Courier, Chang era. And of course, you know, Chris Everett and now Serena and Venus. And, and then it goes on and on. So why do you think, uh, is, is the nationality a factor? Or with you think with the big three, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, that kind of uh, has been compensated for? Uh, the international flavor has settled in and people do respond to these stars? Or you think this is as the exception of the rule after the big three fade away, uh, tennis is going to take a backseat unless an American starts dominating? Broader question, but uh, feel free to explore yeah. it the way you feel appropriate. I think it's a factor that American men's tennis has been down, but I don't think it's a very good excuse. Like I, I, I now, and, and my perspective is limited. I have to admit because, you know, while I can go on YouTube and watch Becker and Sampras and, and take in the, some of the tennis of uh, the seventies, eighties and nineties, what I can't comment on during that time is what the cultural influence of tennis was. Cause I wasn't alive and there's no way I could really possibly understand that. However, you know, I do see an athlete like Connor McGregor in MMA. I do see athletes like Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen um, who uh, you know, I see that it's possible for an international athlete to become a big star in the American sports landscape. So I don't, I don't think that, I don't know if the whole American thing explains it fully, um, but it definitely would help to get, uh, you know, an American man back on top with a personality, I think would be a big deal. And also, I think diversity could also help. And we saw that with Serena and, and Venus. And that, that's also another factor. We see that with Osaka. That makes a difference as well. Unique backgrounds, uh, interesting backstories. Um, the, the, the personality as well can be a factor. But at the same time, there, uh, while you can always try to search for ways tennis can be bigger and can elevate beyond being a a niche sport, there's also, you know, niche sports have to have to exist. So I don't think, I think tennis is in a good and a healthy place. And I don't think there's any reason to, to panic, but also to pretend like it's as big as basketball, football, or baseball in in the United States is, is definitely not the case. Yeah. I think that's very uh, 
I think these these points you made are very relevant, and and I think this is how it's going to hopefully go forward. But you know, New York did lose a 250 tournament, right? Now mm-hmm. the tournament has moved to Dallas, and of course, COVID happened, so it didn't help anyone. But uh, uh, whenever I used to go to the U.S. Open, right, and when I started this podcast, a lot of my friends who are again from India, but you know, they live in the New England area, and they would say, "Yeah, you talk about lack of American." Uh, a lack of interest in American tennis, but at the U.S. Open, you go to the Labor Day weekend, it's, it's so packed. And I, and my answer was, look, it's an international crowd. I've met people there who've traveled for a weekend from Shanghai. I thought I was doing a big deal coming from Boston. I, I met a couple of people in 2006 who came to see Hewitt and Agassi, and they came from Shanghai. So, I mean, you know, tennis is that kind of a sport where people do travel. So I think the fair comparison would be to compare to Knicks or Rangers. If they're not selling in a six-month season, that can say... In, in my view, that's a better example if, say, someone would say hockey or basketball are not faring well in New York. But U.S. Open is such an exception. It's a two-week tournament, and God knows where, you know, I'm sure a lot of New Yorkers attend, but it attracts so many, you know, fans from all over because before COVID, people would plan their trips, you know, all year long. So, again, uh, we'll say one more round on this question. So, with your friends, like you said, you got a lot of calls during the Federer Djokovic final in 2019, Wimbledon. So. Yeah. It happens in my universe too, like even though I'm an American, but not by birth. So I also get reached out by many friends, like when a tennis event happens. So why doesn't that event matter so much? Because uh, the stardom of those two kind of spreads out to like a casual fan and no insult if you're a casual fan, if you only watch Wimbledon US Open final. Uh, So you think that was the appeal or the history involved was the appeal? So, uh, you know, in your friend circle, why was that match, you know, discussed? Why was that match? Why, why did you get pinged so much after that match or during sure. that match? Well, I think um, I think the history was a big part of it. And sports fans love that when sports fans love records, sports fans like, like to uh, discuss who the greatest ever is. Right. Even though I think it's uh, as a, as a tennis I guess insider, someone who's with the sport every day, I think it, it gets very tiresome. Uh, but I think for, for the casual, they're almost tuning into Federer Djokovic and it's, well, who might be this match might decide uh, who the greatest of all time is. And of course there's three, so you can never, you can never have a match that decides it at the moment. But uh, another thing was Federer being an aging athlete and someone who I, I feel like, Another storyline that people really gravitate towards is like the last hurrah or the old guy still has it. We saw that with like a Tom Brady. We've seen that with Tiger Woods winning another Masters. Uh, And the other thing is Novak, whether it's fair or not, has a bit of a, a villain reputation in the U.S. among casual sports fans. So... You know, and I was actually at a bar in Venice, Italy during this match because I, I was spending the summer in London. My parents wanted to go to Italy and I went with them. You know, I was obviously going to watch the tennis that weekend, but I was in Venice, Italy. I, I can tell you there was not one person in the bar uh, rooting for Djokovic. I mean, it was it was all fetter. So I think that's another thing that people actually like. Uh, and actually gets people to be more interested is when they not only have someone to root for Federer being the most, one of the most loved athletes of all time casually, but also I think again, talking about the casual fan, most Djokovic fans are tennis fans. They love tennis. They pay attention. They watch year round the casual American sports fan 
in my opinion, rarely, or from my experience, I should say, is rarely going to root for Djokovic. So that also might have been something that that was at play. Um, hopefully that doesn't make anyone upset. I, I believe that's just the truth. And I think a lot of that can be unfair, uh, but it's just how it how it is. No, I think that's kind of, uh, it's very interesting because I've had these kind of discussions, especially with the infamous 2015 US Open final, because I've gone to the Open better part of the last two decades. I think I can count the three years that I missed before COVID hit. And uh, I've, I've, re- I've run into people who've asked me who Del Potro is. I've I've seen someone asking me to take a picture with, you know, Federer down, you know, playing in the ash. We were on the bleachers at the top and the person wanted me to take a picture and ask me who Federer was. And I'm saying there's only one Federer because the other gentleman is Asian. He's playing. But that kind of showed me like, you know, U.S. Open attracts that kind of those kind of crowds. And you just hit something which, which could be very profound. Like, you know, Federer draws a lot of casual fans. And Novak draws tennis fans. I've never thought along those ways, but I did think like in US Open, you get like, you know, this popularity contest crowd, you know, mm-hmm. not to, you know, discount, you know, your city, because I've also lived there. My wife's from New York, but <laughs> I, I, I noticed that, you know, like it's, it's not like the Knicks. It's just like, it's like the city culture breathes into tennis and they're loud, which I, you know, with all due respect, I don't, I don't think tennis, you know, the way tennis culture is, it's kind of, it kind of uh, interferes with it. They move during, you know, uh, if you're if you if you're sitting at the you know top promenades, they move during points. They don't care. They have their burger. They want to get their beer, and that time the ushers are not you know managing the crowd. But there is the casualness element, and I'm sure like in twenty four thousand, they're like good ten thousand purists sitting there. But on a given day, it's a big city. It, it attracts a lot of uh, casual attendees, and you know. And Djokovic is up there. I think he he's going to have his time. If uh, last year's U.S. Open was the case, I think uh, his greatness is also going to spread into casual fan uh, you know, territory. You know, yep. he's going to conquer some of you know those uh, those names that were rooting for Federer and Nadal. I think some of that math is going to get conquered, like Lendl conquered it, and I'm sure Tim Duncan conquered it. And you know, and like you said, some of it is just like the tennis fan who's behind Novak, and the casual fan sometimes go the other way. So. Let me do a quick segue into podcasting because uh, I've been doing this for five years, but you know, like I'm, I'm a journeyman. I mean, I haven't really made strides. I have very limited following. I'm not made for Twitter. I try hard, but you know, there is like some sort of a calculus, you know, then I see, you know, someone like you, of course, you're very talented, but you, you, you command an audience. So what is your relationship with social media? How do you treat Twitter? How, How do you, okay. First question, why podcasting? How do you get into it? And then my, this question could be a follow-up question. Sorry. Okay, uh, no worries. So it goes back to a time I've known for a long time. I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, um, and I was interning at a radio station in high school. It was a small radio station, uh, local near my uh, near where I grew up, and it ended up shutting down. They weren't making enough money, and they closed up shop. And here I had this incredible internship this one summer. And as soon as, and I thought that I'd be back the next summer and it would be great. As soon as I went to school in September uh, and and stopped the internship, the radio station, it it closed shop. So I needed kind of a new outlet because they were putting me on the air, which was amazing at my, at, at my age. It was, I was on cloud nine. I needed an outlet I wanted to talk about sports into a microphone. It was as simple as that. 
So I went to YouTube um, to do that. And I started talking about all sports and tennis. Uh, tennis was in the mix. And then I did that for about a year. I went to college. In college, uh, I no longer, I had all these other things going on when it came to broadcasting. I didn't really need to keep doing YouTube. What kept me doing it was that I made, you know, there were a couple times where I made videos and talked where I was talking about tennis and those videos did very well. I have a, a stronger technical expertise of the sport. And I think also for, for other reasons, for like search engine reasons, they got a lot of traffic. So I reached a point where I decided that what I could manage was I was going to do one show. It was going to be only about tennis, forget every other sport. I'm just going to talk about tennis every Monday and I'm going to analyze the men's final. That's how Monday match analysis was kind of created. Part of it was just me managing my time. I was so busy. What was something that I could do that I was going to be able to commit to and, and actually do regularly. And what I was doing was something that I didn't think was out there, which was long form analysis of tennis, uh, which I still don't really know where you get that. Like if you read the New York times or, or a tennis.com write up or, uh, any tennis majors, any media outlet that covers tennis after a match, you're not really going to get, um, really kind of deep detailed in depth for the tennis nerd analysis of what happened. Uh, Matt, Matthew Willis at the racket, I think does probably the closest thing to what I do in written form. And I do it in video form on YouTube and on podcast platforms, uh, converted into audio. And that's kind of how it started. You know, now I do some other things like mailbags and single topic videos and stuff. Uh, but that is, uh, that's how it started. Interesting. So you think, uh, with YouTube and all the social media, like my previous question, uh, yeah. we live in a different, you know, we live in a very, how do you say, we have a lot of choice, you know, be it streaming Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, whatever you, you want to watch a movie or international. So similarly in tennis, if I want to see what happened in Marseille, I can go to you or I can go to Matt Willis. We have tennis channel, we have ATP TV, and then we have the Pioris saying, John McEnroe is not well prepared, vice versa, or like, you know, there's establishment. So, so with so much, you know, to choose from, uh, why do you focus on like in-depth analysis? You think, uh, again, we go back to the casual fan because, you know, people want to listen narrative-based podcasts. Sometimes they want to listen what happened. Sometimes they also want to listen to who said what and whose coach uh, was accused for cheating. And, you know, I'm just throwing a lot of out there, but then there's mm -hmm. strictly what happened between, you know, the baseline. So, so which way is your, you, who are you catering to? You know, I ask this to many people, you know, are you catering to the purists? Are you catering to, uh, a casual fan and you not just suspecting anyone or you want to convert the casual into the purist. Do you have, do you keep the imaginary listener or reader in mind while you create your content? I, I do. And I don't, you know, my goal when I do my show is to get to a point where even the diehard tennis fan, even the purist is, is going to hear something that they didn't think about, or maybe that they don't know or a perspective that is going to 
stimulate their thought. Um, that that's my goal. And it's a lot easier if you take, uh, if you take a casual tennis fan, it's going to be a lot easier to teach them something, tell them something they don't know. My challenge is because I, I know most of my audience is not that most of my audience, very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about tennis. They're, they, uh, they know the sport extremely well and they follow it closely. How am I going to add something to their experience? So that's who I have in mind. That's who I'm targeting. However, I'm always, you know, very, very pleased to hear stories of uh, when new fans or or casual fans are able to have their experience enriched as well. Um, I don't think I have them in mind, but it's extremely rewarding if they're able to kind of immerse themselves and and enjoy the content that that I believe gets to a place that is a little bit technical if you don't have some prior knowledge. But I also think that um, even, even newer fans with less knowledge of the game, I, I do think they appreciate, they can appreciate it if they, and, and it's hard for me to say because uh, I, I can't really put myself in their shoes fully, but I hope that nothing I say is going to be something that is not understandable to everyone. Um, maybe just a little bit of lingo and terminology, but hopefully all of that is kind of explained and, and kind of everyone can, can enjoy it. Um, but I think they're with the casual fan, um, they might be less interested perhaps in the, in the start of the thing, you know, the central question that I try to answer, um, and, and sorry to kind of go a couple of different directions here, but I try to. I try to answer the question when someone watches a match, why did the player who won win? And that's the central question. And I think a lot of people watch a match and they enjoy it and they take it in and then they have, they're left with the result. And I try to explain the result and not just, not just, well, this is what the winner did better than the loser, but this is what happened in the first set. This is what changed in the second set. And and just try to paint a picture of the match in an analytical way. That's really what I try to do. No, I think that's. I think you pre, you do a very good job, and uh, you know, uh, I'm sure more power to you. You know, you 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 already an anchor at tennis channel. We'll get to that, but I think there are also layers to casual casualness here. Again, we keep using the word casualness because there are days like you know I follow a lot of tennis. I'll just put myself you know uh, in that category if I have to read say. Uh, Matt Willis's report, and if it's a Djokovic Medvedev final again, you know, that's like a mostly Grand Slam final. But if mm-hmm. it's like Nadal in Acapulco against Nori, you know, like when you throw in a heavyweight like a Nadal or a Djokovic, you know, uh, even in a smaller tournament, uh, I think a lot of people will tune in to get the breakdown, uh, what happened tactically. But similar, but at the same time, if it is a matchup, say. Uh, between Nori and Nadal's replaced by Batista Agut, you know, the star value takes a hit, and then. Maybe that fan, for example, wouldn't be so driven to know what happened tactically. They just check the score, but they'll go to a different podcast because there's so many to choose from and they get a different view if they're discussing other topics. So I think that that is always the case because what is a, what do you call it, an opportunity cost here? You know, like with Nadal and Djokovic and Federer, you will bring a lot of casuals or, you know, a lot of, non, a lot of regular tennis fans who want to just focus on them. 
and that's the star value. And then the analysis is all good as long as you're talking about the big names, but the same analysis is not appealing if you're talking about Jerry Wesley's rise all of a sudden from the dead, you know, like making a file in Dubai. So that's where sometimes I have, you know, discussions with my friends because to me, uh, it's not just about big three Wawrinka and Del Potro, you know. I'm a diehard Ernest Gulbis apologist, so I follow him whenever he shows up even on the challenger tour i'm just surprised i'm fascinated that this guy's still you know putting you know <laughs> yeoman's hours in in challenger code when mm-hmm. everybody thought he comes from wealth and he would be gone he wouldn't last past like the 100 ranking mark so i think that's where uh, i think your analysis is good because you know not only you cover top players i think you do cover everyone and that's where you know i think your audience is far bigger than mine but if someone in tennis with an accent doesn't follow you i'll encourage them to go and check out your work so Let's talk about the landscape of the tour. Like if this was a company, we are like approaching a quarter, you know, so Rafa Nadal is unbeaten, you know, like the best possible, the best ever start, not possible, best ever start to his illustrious career. He hasn't lost a match in a hard court. So did you see this coming? And now, you know, with Indian Wells coming, I want this to be a timeless podcast. But at the same time, did you see Rafa Nadal as the alpha player coming into March? If somebody had told you this, like on January 1st. Yeah, I do. And no, I didn't see it coming. In fact, I, uh, I, I had faith that Nadal would have a good season, but I thought he might start slow because the, the descriptions that I was reading uh, from Carlos Moya mostly, but also from Nadal himself, suggested that it had been a, a really difficult uh, four or five months after that foot injury, after the the match in DC where he really did not uh, look good against Lloyd Harris and even Jack Sock in the in the previous round, uh, and I just I wasn't expecting much to start. And uh, however, you know, really since 2017, when he's been healthy, he's been winning at at a pretty high clip, 80 percent win percentage last year. That is uh, that's a great win percentage, even if you look at at 2021 as a down year. Um, or yeah, even if you look at 2021 as a down year, it's only, it was only a down year because he wasn't playing as many matches. He was still winning at a, at a very high clip. So I had reason to think Nadal would be good, but I thought he'd start slow. And obviously that didn't happen at all. He was ready to go. He, at the very least rounded himself into form. He got into kind of two 50, 50 matches in Australia against Shapovalov and Medvedev won both for a multitude of reasons. And then last week in Acapulco, I think is when it became clear, you know, Nadal's having a moment here. Just like Federer had a moment at the same age that Nadal is, 35 years old, coming into a major that he didn't expect to win. Federer didn't either. Nadal ends up winning it. And you can see a weight off of his, off of his shoulders and a certain relaxation in his game. I thought the level in, Al- in Acapulco was outstanding, out of this world, really. And, I mean, Medvedev and Nori, they uh, neither had much of a chance. Medvedev was not at his best. Nori was at his best. I actually think Nadal had to play, had a tougher opponent in Nori than Medvedev based on how they played. But I, I thought Rafa just looked amazing. So, I'm surprised that Nadal hasn't had more success in his career at Indian Wells, uh, losing a lot of finals there. And I do think that 
he he is the alpha right now. He is the number one right now. And it's not going to help Novak Djokovic that he's not playing matches. He's not, it's not going to do him favors. Now, now long term, it might be fine, but in the short term, in the short term, it, it's it's going to be a, a hindrance to him in some way. So yeah, let's take uh, talk quickly about Djokovic. Did you get to see any of Djokovic in Dubai? And you know, Jerry Vesely, you know, is one of the handful players who beat Djokovic now twice and hasn't lost to him. So, what do you make of this week? And now Djokovic is again not going to be in action for the next few tournaments, like you said, the hindrance. But uh, you think uh, his level? Wh- what do you think of his level? I didn't get, catch much tennis last week. Sure. So, talk about his few matches and what whatever you caught of it. Pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I, I missed some of it as well uh, against Vesely. That's that, that match I watched in full and it was just a really bad serving day. A couple of factors. So you know, a bad serving day by Djokovic and that's going to happen. But now you have one of the quickest courts in the world and an opponent with a, a huge serve and a lot of firepower off the ground uh, really, you know, takes the ball hard and early and precise. And when, when Vesely is, firing at his best he's not missing a lot and he's playing fearless on a surface like that and that's the only surface where he can really be great on is a low bouncing fast slick surface plus Novak was a little bit off a little bit off of his calibration I just thought all of the elements and the ingredients were there for an upset so I I don't make too much of it you know Vesely was with I was so impressed with with his performance and and what he did, but you know, all of the again, all of the circumstances suggested that uh, it was just one of those matches where Novak was going to get upset, and it happens. I I thought he looked pretty good, you know, overall, and uh, in the match before against uh, Hatchinov, right? I thought thought he played a great match against Hatchinov. So, um. I don't I know. It, I I don't know what to make of. I don't know what to make of of where he's at long term right now. It's it's hard to say. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we can easily brush this loss aside because there's a lot going on. Of course, you know, Djokovic choosing not to, you know, place, you know, because of the vaccination stand. Uh, but he's he's done. You know, I mean, again, these are like unusual circumstances, even you know, by any tennis standard. But I think he definitely, according to me. I think he would be the factor, or he would not factor, he would be the favorite in most tournaments he entered. I mean, with Nadal, uh, you know, regaining this kind of form, I think French Open, would we have to put Rafa always as the leading favorite, but I think everywhere else, I think I still have to put Djokovic, if he's in, as as the favorite or the co-favorite, because who knows what Nadal's going to put up for numbers. So let's talk about Indian Wells. If there was a power ranking, and if Rafa is number one right now with being undefeated in like, what, 14 matches, is Medvedev your number two guy? If you, of course, draw is like still a week away. But how do you, how do you, you know, uh, handicap the field right now? You know, with whatever you've seen of Medvedev, who's been crowned number one. I think he should stay for a few weeks there, unless what's the math? He doesn't reach the semis. I think Djokovic regains it. But uh, yeah, uh, talk about Medvedev's year, and you know, is he a number two guy coming into Indian Wells? Yeah, I've been a, a big Medvedev. I, I don't want to. I'm trying to look for the right word. I've been very high on Medvedev for a very long time right now, but I think right now he's in a vulnerable spot. Uh, there's a the couple of factors and Indian Wells is extremely slow. 
Medvedev still has some issues technically um, on the slowest surfaces uh, in terms of how he's able to generate offense from the back of the court and just the uh, lacking a little bit of power, a little bit of weight of shot from the back and, and finishing abilities, you know, transition game uh, issues. So it's always going to be harder for him. And he's going to always ask more of himself to win on slower hard courts, but we've seen him be, be able to do it in the past. I think some other factors coming in is how you respond mentally to becoming world number one. And that's sometimes a shock to the system and different players can handle that in different ways. And then you have, um, then you have the Russia Ukraine issue at the moment. And, you know, you just don't know how both Ukrainian players, Russian players, Belarusian players, you don't know if that's going to have some sort of effect on them Uh, again. And when I say you don't know, I mean, you literally do not know. It could have absolutely zero effect and influence, or it could. Um, And it's just something to kind of throw out there as a, as a a factor and a a possibility. Um, And then, okay, there's one more thing and it's the off season. And I think the fact that Medvedev had a three week off season, which is just not enough at some point that catches up with you. I never liked that. I was always concerned about that. And I think, you know, I'm, I question whether or not he's had the extended rest that he needed. I don't think he really should have played Acapulco. And I just, I, I also kind of worry about, is there going to be a dip in his schedule where he's feeling emotionally and physically a little bit worn down because he played so much tennis at the end of last year and he barely had any time to recover. So all of those things combined. And I think there's some reason for, for Medvedev doubt. With that being said, would I be shocked if he plays a great tournament? No. Interesting points. Yeah, you're right. The desert conditions being slow. Uh, this may not be Medvedev's ideal code, but again, you know, like he's done pretty well on hard court, so I won't rule him out, but let's focus a few minutes on Medvedev versus Nadal. The matchup is getting mm-hmm. quite lopsided, of course, you know, if you just look at 5-1 head-to-head, but there have been a lot of close matches in there. Two five-set Grand Slam finals, then there was like that World Tour final match when Nadal came back from 1-5 or 2-5 down, so just br- break it down, you know, like don't get too technical, but break it down like, you know, what's causing uh, this match uh, for me, it's like Rafa's variety. You know, he his use of real estate with the drop shot, serve and volley. He mixes up way too much, even though Daniel comes to the net. But I think uh, his flat stroke sometimes, I think, cannot get the better of Nadal in a baseline duel, you know. So uh, feel free to disagree. I mean, you know, my, my technical sure. analysis could be very poor. But yeah, how do you see the 1-5 deficit from the Russians' point of view? No, no, you're, you're right. I think uh, what you said is, is pretty much where I would have gone with it. The, at the end of the day, besides, you know, Medvedev has one elite weapon offensively, which is his surf. And that's a point ender, a point finisher, and a, a great one at that. Beyond that, after you get th- you know past that serve, Medvedev becomes a player who wins matches with his defense and his play in neutral, his consistency. And 99% of players are going to play Medvedev and they're going to feel like it's very, very, very difficult to finish points against him. They can't find winners. They can't force errors. They don't know, you know, they can't find a way through his defenses. 
Nadal is good enough where he just doesn't have that same problem. And his return is good enough to neutralize a lot of Medvedev serving advantages, right? So I think the way Nadal attacks with his forehand, the sharper angles that he's able to hit to make Medvedev cover more court and, and to mix in, obviously, the, the flat, um, the flat more pace-heavy forehands as well. Uh, that elite forehand, that a Djokovic or a Zverev, even elite players like those two, against Medvedev, they don't really have that that forehand that creates instant offense from neutral positions very easily against a player like Medvedev from behind the baseline. Nadal has that. That's the first thing. And then the way he finishes up at net um, can also take away from Medvedev's ability to defend and neutralize and the use of the drop shot to make Medvedev pay for his defensive court positioning. That also takes away from Medvedev's ability to defend and aids Nadal's ability to finish points. So I see it as kind of a a somewhat simple equation where, you know, Medvedev's defense confounds so many and Nadal has enough, enough weaponry and enough tools to not be confounded and to find ways through that defense. I think fair, fair analysis. And it's only fitting to acknowledge that Medvedev could have easily won three of those matches, the one I mentioned, and he could, you know, be four or two in the set to it, but he's not. And we have to give Nadal credit, uh, you know, because he does find uh, a way to win these closed matches against the Russian. So it's, it's clear, uh, Gil, that at right now, Daniel Medvedev being world number one, but if you compare him to his two age group rivals, Zverev and Tsitsipas, we all agree overall Medvedev is the more accomplished and probably a better player than those two. Even his head to head against those two reflects that. But I heard some murmurs you know, every now and then, and you know, my ecosystem, some people believe given the forms Vera is in and given the form Sitsipas is in, they might be better suited to take Nadal in a one in, in the head to head matchup. Of course, Nadal will be the favorite, but do you believe they will have more ways to hurt, uh, say, Rafa on a hard court than uh, Daniel? Certainly not if we're talking, you know, like, you know, Zverev had a major. At the moment, you can't have any confidence in in his ability to perform at his best because he just hasn't given anyone reason to to feel that confidence. Uh, Pass on a, often, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, Pass on a hard court against Nadal. Uh, no, I, I think Medvedev is a better test on a on a hard court against Nadal. And you know, I mean, Pass has beat Rafa in Australia. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be confident there. No, I will say a lot has happened with Pass, And I don't think, although Medvedev is a bad matchup, uh, I, I feel like if we're, if we're treating clay, like it is as port as it, as is as important as a hard court, then I don't think that you can make such a clear distinction that Medvedev is a better player blanket statement. Because I do think that Tsitsipas was the best player on clay for most of the 2021 clay court swing. It wasn't until Roland Garros where, of course, Nadal and and Djokovic and and Rome as well, where Nadal and Djokovic kind of emerged as they have at majors. Um, 
you know, a lot has happened with Titi Pass injuries, a coaching change, new strings. I, I don't feel like we really know where he's at, but I wouldn't discount him yet at the moment. No, you're right. I think on clay, Tsitsipas is clearly the best of the three guys I mentioned. And uh, Zverev and Berrettini, I would put ahead of Medvedev on clay. Medvedev, you know, showed some progress last year by reaching the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. But I think uh, there are other guys who can play better on clay than him is clear. So my question was just purely on hard courts. Okay. And I think, yep. yeah, no, and, and you did explain. I think you, you gave your views, which are, I think, uh, quite solid. And uh, let's move on to... Uh, Sissipas coming into this tournament at Indian Wells. Is he the third guy in your power ranking or you want to put an Andre Rublev or even a Felix Ojealiasim? How do you see the field? Who's the number three guy? Uh, and we're assuming Zverev would serve at least some time off the court. So I'm taking him out right. of the equation that he may not be in Indian Wells and should not be in Indian Wells. But uh, uh, is Sissipas your third guy uh, if you were to do a power ranking chart prior to Indian Wells draw? Uh, I probably, I just don't know and I, I didn't, I didn't see the loss to Nori, but I, I don't know that Tsitsipas has looked himself um, in the last couple of weeks. Although he hasn't had any really poor results, which is I, I think impressive. I just don't think he would be really ready to to take this next step. Although I do think conditions wise, Indian Wells in the future could be a good tournament for him. Uh, yeah, I would prefer Felix, um, and I would continue to keep an eye out for a Carlos Alcaraz breakthrough on, on a big stage. I think that is going to happen very soon in, in one of these masters or slams Alcaraz is going to uh, make a splash, make some big, no- big time noise. So I would, I would keep, uh, keep that on the radar, but yeah, I, I think Felix would probably be that guy. The way he's looked this year uh, has been um, really fantastic to see has made massive strides in his game and he's been as good almost as uh, anyone outside of Nadal. Yeah, I had the similar amount of faith in Felix when a lot of people didn't. Again, it's not about taking, uh, you know, trying to say, I told you so. But I, I figured, mm-hmm. you know, like, if you look at his movement and sometimes he would spray the forehand long and he would make a huge double fault, you know. Uh, but I thought, you know, he's cleaned up his game. Uh, there was... There was only ways to go up because, you know, he was such a great athlete and he had some great hands. So w- what do you think is the one big shot or one big improvement that uh, Oji Aliasim is having this kind of a season, almost beat Medvedev in Australia, uh, helped Canada win the ATP Cup, won his first tournament, and he's going deep into almost every week he's entered. So what one shot, if you were to pick, has changed, which has kind of eliminated, you know, the odd result that Oji Aliasim would always, you know, falter at, like, the business end of these tournaments. It's hard. I don't, I don't think it's a shot. I think it's a, I think it's rather an approach um, and patience, patience and trusting the legs and the athleticism. I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, He is, you know, he's always had the tools to be what I would call a three-way player can play from, uh, offensive positions, you can play from neutral positions and you can play from defensive positions. He always had that capability, but he never really used it. He was inconsistent from neutral, wasn't really willing to defend much. And when with, especially with his court position, wasn't willing to maximize his defense. Uh, but it was all about, it was all about attack and he would go for a lot on his forehand yet. Even the attacking style wasn't optimized because 
he didn't really have a transition game and wasn't confident really finishing at net. So, I mean, plain and simple, he, he made too many unforced errors. Um, and especially that was true on the forehand side. And I think he's started to hit to bigger targets. He's added in his trading ball a little bit of height and topspin. And he's cut down those kind of rally ball errors. Um, and he's always kind of, again, he has the skill set to be able to do that because he doesn't need to be this ultra attacking player. His movement is outstanding. Uh, he has all the tools to defend. Um, and as a result, you know, you don't always need to be take on that extra risk in order to dictate. So I think now he's understanding that he's trusting his athleticism. His court positioning is now dynamic where he's recognizing when it's time to defend and he's, he's dropping back and maximizing his court coverage. He's recognizing when he might have a chance to step inside the court and he's moving forward. Uh, he's volleying. Well, the, the second serve, which was a problem a couple years back is, uh, is, completely in check and not holding him back. All of these things uh, are, are really big factors for why he's playing so much better. Do you see him winning a slam or a masters 1000 this year? Um, I wouldn't be stunned. I, uh, I think Wimbledon is probably his best chance. I think he's been great on grass for the most part for, uh, for a long time now. So uh, do I think he's ready to take that step? I wouldn't predict it, but I don't think it's crazy to consider the idea that it would happen, if that makes sense. No, I mean, that's why the thought has occurred to me again with yeah. the big three. You always think, you know, now there's going to be more winners, but then, you know, Rafa writes that incredible run in Australia, you know, and Novak is still, to me, the best player, you know, if he's entering this tournament, it's all due respect to Nadal. I think uh, outside of French, I, I'm going to, Still think Novak, you know, if he's in these tournaments, he can go the distance till Nadal proves me otherwise. Uh, so you talked about Alcaraz, right? And a lot of people are talking about it. And I've become a believer that, you know, everybody's aware that this can happen very quickly. He's more ready than the guys we have talked about, the Medvedevs, the Zverevs, the Sitsipasas, and even Ojeal Yassim. So what is so special about this guy? And which slam do you think he can, you know, uh, make that make that glorious run that we've all been talking about every now and then, you know, watch out. He could be yeah. there before others. There's a lot special, but to me, it's the athleticism, the movement. And that's the, it's the kind of genetic lottery athleticism that I'm sorry, you know, most people just aren't born with that. And it doesn't matter how hard you work or what you do. You just don't have it. And that's kind of the unsaid truth about sport at, I think this level is just kind of the the genetics factor. It's clear that Carlos works very, very hard, by the way, and you have to work extremely hard. But the athlete that Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, they all are. You now, I grew up with these players dominating the sport and with few exceptions, like Gael Monfils, who had a lot of flaws, a lot of holes in, in his game. Uh, with, with few exceptions like him, these were the best athletes in the sport. If you measured, you know, their, their ability to move, their ability to endure, they would be top of the class, their footwork, all that top of the class. Carlos is the player who reminds me of that. His movement around the court is different. 
Now you go to, okay, are there issues? Are there holes? And there's really not. Uh, both wings are super solid. The forehand's a weapon and a really big weapon. He's got amazing feel. He will move forward and finish at net. The drop shots are awesome. He has an understanding of defense. He has a backhand slice. The serve is behind, but who, where else have we seen that? Nadal's serve was behind. Djokovic's serve was behind. We see as players get older and they age, that's a shot that is very easy to fine tune and develop. Uh, so I'm just, I'm not finding a lot of holes to pick. Oh, and mental. You know, let's not forget that. The way he competes on court is exactly what you want to see out of a young player. He's focused. He's determined. He appears to be willing to suffer. Now, let's see how he handles pressure. Got to see that and haven't really had the chance to, to see that. But um, I'm just not finding a lot of reasons to, to not, you know, that would make me pause and hesitate when it comes to what his potential can be. I think well said. And I was, it's not like I'm not a believer, but I thought, you know, how tennis is age. You don't get these kind of teenagers, but he definitely seems like an exception to the rule. He seems like a throwback player who's playing with this kind of potential and this kind of a big game in this era when it takes people to, you know, the game mature at their own pace. So you, you, you've taken his name, but you haven't spoken about Rublev. So where is his, his success? You know, how do you rate him with his current form coming in? Him also being a Russian, he wrote that thing on the lens. It's been talked about a lot. Uh, is, is India, could Indian Wells be the tournament where he gets over the hump and wins his first 1,000? Uh, where do you put him in the stack of things? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's good to see him have the success that he's had in the last couple of weeks. It was a tough stretch before then. Um, I'm just not, I'm not completely sold um, on his ability to beat his uh, elite rivals at the moment. I, I do think that there are still physical, technical and mental questions, less so physical until, you know, you hit best of five. And then I do think we we've seen a pattern where he hasn't played some of those long matches as well. And he's, you know, he's worn down in some of those matches. Uh, but I need to see him play great outdoors, uh, indoors. His first serve is a lot more effective and he, he gets to play off of his front foot after, after his first serve. And, and that's a big advantage for him. And I guess the second serve still seems to be something that gets attacked. And the backhand is somewhere where players, I think it can be very good at times, but also players can attack his shot tolerance by rallying to his backhand, extending rallies and kind of wearing him down that way. There are a couple different ways. The backhand slice Uh, He doesn't have that shot, which means he's susceptible to players who are able to hit backhand slice against him because he can't slice back. Um, The, I think on a slower surface, like Indian Wells as well, it's going to be, he's not, I'd be, I'd be surprised if he won it. Now, I also think that he has plenty of potential. He doesn't need to be Mr. Variety in order to, take the next step. Uh, but he needs to 
be a little bit more stable mentally. He needs to be able to deal with the ups and downs of a match a little bit better. He goes too dark on himself. I think he has room to develop more physically. And the second serve is, uh, is a pretty big technical issue. It's, it's pretty big. Uh, and on, you know, indoors, it tends to not be as bad, but outdoors, it, it's something that, that will need to improve. Yeah, and without a good second serve, you can't win these elite titles. So let's see. Uh, the jury's yeah. out on him, but I think he's, you know, he's putting in the work. He's in the conversation just behind some of those guys. Uh, so we covered, you know, a lot of the top players. Uh, let's talk about the American players. You and I had a, uh, I think, a Twitter exchange a couple of months mm-hmm. ago when I said Nakashima, you said Koda, and I said, yeah, you know, Koda's pretty special too. So how do you uh, take stock of the American talent out there? And let's throw Opelka in there. Uh, well, you know, yeah. are you hopeful to see? Are you hopeful to see some of these names making a deep run in this uh, uh, sunshine sunshine double uh, phase? And who's who are you most excited about? Definitely hopeful. Uh, Opelka, Opelka played great in in Delray and Dallas, and he's someone who has not shown great week to week consistency. But when he's hot, I still think he's got a higher ceiling than John Isner. And John Isner, you know, made the top 10. And I feel like Opelka is a a more natural athlete, moves a lot better. And I think he can be better. So Opelka right now and uh, Taylor Fritz. Uh, Fritz was hitting the ball as well as as anyone in Australia. There's always going to be some athletic limitations, but I think Fritz was at a top 15 to top 10 level. And uh, he's got a lot of points to defend making the semifinal at Indian Wells, or actually, you know what? The points won't come off. I don't think until, uh, October. So it's sort of points to defend, but it's also sort of not. Uh, so I think Fritz and Opelka are the most, are the guys who are ready to do it right now. Um, and then I'm, uh, I'm optimistic about Brooksby. If he can stay healthy Corda, I think has a ways to go with his consistency, and when I say consistency, it's a, a different sense than with Opelka, where I'm talking about week to week. Corda, uh, I'm talking about just limiting the errors, really, in in rallies and not letting the uh, not giving away easy service games where the errors are are bunching up. So Corda, I don't think is quite ready at the moment. Uh, Nakashima, I don't think is quite ready at the moment to to make a deep run. But I would say uh, Fritz and, and Opelka. Yeah, and talking about Korda, I think that loss to Dusan Lajovic in Acapulco was a prime example of what he just said. He lost the last five games of that match in the third set. And that's a match, you know, hopefully in a couple of years from now, you know, he should be he should be focused enough to put away. But again, you know, credit to Lajovic to to make uh, make that win because, you know, pro tennis, is, there's no easy out there. So someone's loss is someone's gain and, you know, everybody's trying to get that result. So. Uh, any other player you know you want to talk about that has impressed you in the last couple of months uh, or you said to your listeners told you so this guy is good <laughs> who else is there you know that we haven't talked about coming into Indian Wells hmm let's see oh I, I guess I'm I'm very intrigued by Rude who unfortunately had the the freak injury before the Australian Open um, who was was so impressive at the year-end championships last year compared to expectation on a quick court indoors. Um, 
I really want to see what he's done because he looked, I also thought he looked pretty good at the ATP cup and I was looking forward to seeing what he might do in Australia. And we were robbed of that. So um, most players, you know, players who do well on clay often perform pretty well at Indian Wells because it's a surface that is again, pretty slow, high bouncing. And uh, I think I'm, he's probably the player who had circle uh, for a player to watch out for. Cause I think uh, again, I don't know where he's at cause we haven't seen him as much as maybe we would hope uh, because of the injury. However, uh, I think he's well positioned perhaps to make a run. Yeah. He won Buenos Aires and then had to withdraw from Rio. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, right. Right. But uh, I guess good point, but you know, he, uh, the clay two fifties where we've reached a point where we know rude is going to pretty much win those. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't, he's won now five in a row or maybe four out of the last five. So he, he's reached a proficiency on clay where the only players he's not, he's going to lose to on clay are going to be, you know, top 10 players. So I almost feel like he, he wins, he wins Buenos Aires. Okay. That's, that's great. But we definitely don't really learn anything about him because we already know that he's probably going to win that event. No, fair enough. All right, so uh, let's also talk about one Andy Murray, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk on Twitter, a lot of support, you know, an absolute legend of the game. Uh, a lot of wild cards. I have no issues with wild cards because I think it's a tournament decision anyway to begin with. It's a business decision. So what do you make of his tennis, you know? He looks brilliant one day and then, you know, totally falls apart uh, next day. Tennis is not easy, like we've said. He's so much mileage and, you know, the hip surgery injury he's coming back from is remarkable. But where is he in the pecking order? I mean, how, what's your what's your prophecy on Barry? How far do you think this thing will continue? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a little bit strange because you know it's a guy who has been mentally battle tested, and he's reached number one in the world, and he's won multiple major titles, and has beaten you know spent so many years with incredible consistency at the slams, uh, but. I, I wonder if he's in his head a little bit right now. He, he seems to be kind of tormenting himself. And I almost feel like he just needs to, to start to feel better about himself. If, if he's going to kind of break out of the pattern that he's fallen into. Uh, so, so that, that's a weird thing to say again about a player who's accomplished so much that, that his mind is kind of holding him back, but I'm seeing him on the court. He doesn't look, there's no calm confidence to, to his tennis right now. Everything is, is very tense and very panicked. And that's kind of just what I'm seeing from him from a a demeanor perspective, from a tennis perspective, I guess he, he's struggling to reinvent himself and do things that we've seen Nadal do. And even to a, to a lesser extent, Djokovic and Federer do as they age to try to make up for declined movement. And we're seeing Murray struggle to make those adaptations. So that's, that's another factor here. I think he'll continue to try those things and we'll see if he's successful. He's got time. You balance kind of the perspective of your, it's great to see him back, but also clearly I think he's capable of doing a little bit better results-wise than he has. Absolutely. 
uh, which, you know, so some sort of a Murray revival, like he puts on a run because he's too good not to, but, you know, the tour is not a fun place if, you know, you can't get two matches in a row. Yeah. All right, so let's wrap this up. Uh, thanks for a wonderful chat. You're also a tennis cha- channel anchor. So talk about that. How did that come about as a concluding remark? And then I may have a follow-up before I let you go. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, that was kind of the the dream scenario for me. Uh, I didn't know, you know, this is a weird industry. You, you never know what your path is going to be or where you're going to have to move. And it's uh, it's definitely can, can be very difficult early on, but uh, I was just very, very lucky where the timing, the timing was right from, you know, where the company was at, where, where the network was at uh, and, you know, where I was at and I was able to get in touch with, with the right people. And I had enough opportunities in in school to kind of show what I could do. And uh, it it ended up working out where uh, I was able to, to start there, which was my dream. Uh, and, and exactly how I, I hoped things would play out, but I, I was never counting on it and I never could have, uh, expected it, but I'm just, I'm just glad it's happened. And I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, uh, doing everything I get to do with them. I wish you all the best. And this was a great conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Hopefully I did some justice to bring you here and ask you some, you know, decent questions. Hopefully we can get you back here. Uh, maybe later in the year and talk more tennis. Uh, he's Gil Gross. You know, you know who he is. I, he doesn't need an introduction from me, but if there's someone out there who didn't know, go check his account, go check his YouTube show and follow him on Twitter. And we'll be back with another show, uh, hopefully soon during Indian Wells. Thank you, Gil. This was an extremely wonderful chat. I learned quite a lot. Hopefully the listeners did too. Thanks so much, Sakib. Anytime. <laughs>